You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Stella. How are you? Hi, Sasha. Good to see you again. You too. So here we are, episode two, and we are going to be talking about rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is a big term, very controversial term, but we're going to try to do it justice once again. The reason why we were anxious to, to talk about this and talk about it early into this podcast is because of the volume of contact we get, both of us as psychotherapists, about this issue. Mm-hmm. And it's, we feel it's really, really important to give it its own episode so that people can say, what are they talking about when they're talking about ROGD? And some people act as if it's, it's, it's a devilish term. And some people say it's, it's kind of impenetrable. What is it? So hopefully by the end of this episode, people will actually say, okay, it's a description of a phenomenon. And it, it carries implications, I suppose. It sure does. I think it would be helpful. We can start out by just explaining what ROGD means. And then perhaps you and I can talk a little bit about our, our experience with this. Because um, rather than being kind of outsiders, just following the academic literature, we have a lot of firsthand experience with this population. So we'll start by explaining rapid onset gender dysphoria is just a descriptive term. It is not implied that this is a formal diagnosis. It's not in the DSM. This is a term that simply describes a phenomenon. And sometimes I like to explain it as adolescent onset gender questioning. When a young person has never stated that they're questioning their gender, never had any incongruency with their gender identity and their biological sex. And then around the age of puberty, they begin to do so. I think of it as adolescent onset gender questioning or rapid onset gender dysphoria. And Dr. Lisa Littman is the first person who actually used this term. Stella, can you talk a little bit about Dr. Littman? Yeah, she's fascinating. She is just a researcher through and through. And I I know she worked in in kind of different kind of different careers. But it seems to me that when like I've met her and I, I kind of see her work, that she's definitely found her place in research. And she noticed a kind of a thing was going on around her area and she wanted to study it. And I I don't know, but I I presume she didn't know it was going to be as controversial as it ended up being. Mm -hmm. And I do know that Lisa Marciano, first of all, wrote a paper a year before in 2017 called Outbreak. And that very much spoke to the phenomenon that Lisa Littman a year later decided to study. So I'd imagine there must have been some contact between the two of them, but certainly they were noticing that teenagers, especially girls, but I don't think it's so much girls now, it's a few years later, but especially girls were prone to 
going a certain direction in a way that they just never had before. It just, this has not happened before. There is no account, there's no psychological accounts of this happening to the degree, to the force, to the numbers, to the extent ever before. Mm-hmm. And so much of the studies that people talk about, whether they're on the side of gender identity or gender dysphoria, they haven't referenced any any sort of adolescent onset. It's just not really in the, the books. It's not in the textbooks. It's quite rare and seldom mentioned in the textbooks. And if it is, it's an aside. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's become the main cohort. It's become the main population. And it's become the one that I'm certainly inundated with contact with. And so are you. Mm-hmm. So to talk about Lisa Lippmann's paper, she decided to study it. And interestingly, she went for the parents' analysis of what was going on. And I would imagine she went for that because it was uh, certainly the way to get the most information and to get the widest information and to get the, it, w- it would be clearer because parents can say, well, this is what the child was like at five. This is like the child was like at 10. And this is what the child is like at 15. A parent has a, fun, has a kind of perspective. While if you're a 15 year old, I'm not sure you have that analysis or insight of what you were like when you were five and 10. I don't mm-hmm. think you have the, you think you need the hindsight and I don't think you quite have it. So I think she was right to study from the parents' view. And yet she's been very, very heavily criticised for taking the parents' view of it. And that was one of the reasons that her paper, like huge amount of criticism happened to this paper. And phenomenal. And it, got, it went through very rigorous checks in the first place to get published and then went through hoops, circus hoops. Uh, during the review, and then it was republished again in 2019 with very, very minor additions and added table and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it stands up. It stands critical rigour. And it has withstood an extraordinary level of, of criticism mm-hmm. and magnification of any any sort of non-dotted eye. And it's still immaculate. So mm-hmm. take a bow, Dr. Lutman, because... It, <laughs> That's that's one paper that really got through, brought through the ringer. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Lisa Marciano's paper didn't get half as much pushback while mm-hmm. she was just describing what was going on. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. I think people didn't like the numbers. They didn't like parents describing this. They didn't like the reality of, of the study that Dr. Littman brought in. Mm-hmm. Well, for for our audience who may not be familiar, what Dr. Lippmann observed was that peer clusters of girls were announcing that they are transgender in adolescence. So her survey, which, as Stella, you mentioned, um, was filled out by parents. This is a very common methodology when studying children. We, we often rely on parental reports when we're trying to study a phenomenon, a psychological phenomenon in children. And she asked parents questions about when their child first began questioning their gender. She asked about whether or not these children had any gender nonconformity or gender identity complaints in their childhoods. And she also asked about other important factors like co-occurring mental health diagnoses She asked about autism. She asked about giftedness. So she was assessing a broad range of characteristics and traits, trying to get a bigger picture of this population of young girls and boys as well, announcing a trans identity in adolescence. 
And to summarize, you know, Lisa's paper, it was in the journal, uh, the quarterly journal of Jungian thought and, and Lisa, Lisa Marciano. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's a Jungian analyst. So Jungian analysts tend to look at uh, symbolism and they're, they're part of the depth psychology field. And Lisa's paper describes um, somewhat of a, a hysteria. And she describes other hysterias throughout history in which a, a certain symptom enters the population, it becomes culturally sanctioned, and through the process of questioning one's own identity and being exposed to this idea, this, this diagnosis, that people can become quite fixated and latch on to this. And her paper was the, I believe, the most read piece in that journal ever. So even though it obviously garnered a lot of attention, Dr. Littman's research definitely was uh, much more controversial and attacked more frequently, I think. Yeah, I'm sure Jungian analysts would be able to tell us why. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, 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 it's fascinating when, when Lisa Marciano is talking about the symptom pool, because anybody who knows anything about psychology and the history of psychology will know that is not a new concept. This has happened again and again and again. So, for example, I, I know I was always fascinated with uh, Fiji, the island of Fiji, and they, they were kind of late to get electricity. They didn't really get electricity fully until about 1985, and they didn't get prime TV, you know, what we would consider prime TV until about 1995. And until 1995, they considered well-muscled, broad, big women, gorgeous. And then uh, 1995 arrived, they got the prime TV, the teenagers started watching things like Beverly Hills 90210. And within the years, it was unbelievable how quick, within, within three years, between 1995 and 98, by 1998, 74% of teenage Fijian girls were declaring themselves too big or too fat. And up until, so three years previously, they reveled in their oh. bigness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And about 10 years later, 2007, 45% had uh, kind of purged. They had used bulimia. They had used bulimic kind of um, activity to reduce their weight. So there's a really, really <laughs> very clear example of the right. symptom pool. They didn't know about it when they heard about it. They were all, they fell in. And, you know, it feels a little bit controversial or what's the word, inappropriate or sexist to say it. But teenage girls, they're a phenomenal in themselves. They're a force to be reckoned with. There's something about the teenage girl from the Salem witch trials onwards. And I, I, it's very interesting when you look at it. They're so beautiful and they have so much power. And I don't know if they know what to do with the power and their beauty. They are, they bring out a lot of sexual feelings in a lot of men. And I think that they're in and of themselves, they're in a very vulnerable position and in a very powerful position. And it's a weird combination. They mightn't be happy with their very overt sexuality. Everybody else is noticing it. Mm. And their, their, their emotions are deep and big and strong. And I, you know, you, you, you really knew, really do have to reach deep when you've got a teenage client. And I, I shouldn't say this is just teenage girls, but I have noticed when I look at kind of different 
symptom pool um, examples, teenage girls are very prone mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. So I, I I do think it's it, it everything about RGD is for anybody who knows their history of psychology is like yeah seen this before mm-hmm. we'll see it mm-hmm. again there will be another thing whether mm-hmm. well, there will be many more of teenage mm-hmm. girls leading the way into uh, a phenomenon that we haven't mm-hmm. yet seen. Mm-hmm. I really want to comment on what you said about teenage girls and sexuality, you know, this is a very taboo topic to talk about teenagers and sexuality. And I'm aware that for teenage girls, whether they are ready or not, they are going to be sexualized. And I think on one hand, they do have a lot of power, perhaps that they don't know what to do with yet. And on the other hand, there's something that feels very powerless about being sexualized before you're ready. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think it's a very difficult place to be in when you are, you, your body is developing and changing and you may not be up for that task yet. It's almost like when you wear something outrageous and you, you realize later on that I, I'm not up to this. Up. <laughs> oh my God, where's my coat? Yeah. But they can't coat it up they try to but they they can't it's kind of emanating from them I think it's you're right I think teenage sexuality is taboo I think we don't know what to do with it we know talking about anything to do with sex prepubescent is inappropriate and Mm -hmm. we're very clear Mm -hmm. of that Mm -hmm. and then we're clear that around about 18 they can have adult sex and we're very clear about that (laughs) and then there's this weird time between 11 and 18 where we're aware children are growing a sexuality they're, they're starting to masturbate. They're starting to feel sexual. And there is no place in society to talk about it. And it, it goes underground and it goes into nasty, dark porn is where it goes. There is no place otherwise, other than the kind of sex ed classes, which frankly aren't a, a joyful place, but <laughs> there is nowhere else. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't envisioned what we, what what we can do about that. I, I don't mm-hmm. know if there's a solution, but I'd say parents who are listening to us and teenagers who are listening to us are desperate for us to go back to ROGD. <laughs> well, I want to talk about, <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about symptom pool because we, we've yeah. both mentioned this, this term and um, symptom pool comes from a historian of psychiatry. So this is a Dr. Edward Shorter. And he came up with this term to describe this phenomenon where um, if a particular uh, symptom is not expressed in a culture or there's no concept for it, you simply won't see large numbers of people exhibiting that symptom. It'll be something that's just a non-issue. But once a symptom is kind of released into a population, all of a sudden there becomes this legitimate understood way of channeling one's distress. And then it becomes recognized and attended to, and all of a sudden you see explosions in numbers in the population. And and like you said, Stella, there are countless examples of this in history. I have a book, I wish people could see my hands, that is a thick book. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages describing all of these different uh, kind of explosions of a symptom in a population. And what wow. I, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. I'll, I'll include a link in the notes. 
But what I what I describe in in my practice, and to kind of go back to who we are, I started my private practice in 2016. And since that time, I have been contacted by 1,300 families for gender dysphoria in their children. This is a lot of people. So I've consulted with about 500 families at this point, and I have a full caseload of teenagers that I see. And what I have pieced together is that there's this pathway of suffering. This is what I kind of describe as a pathway of suffering. So a child will start out with some kind of hard-to-solve nebulous distress. It could be some kind of social rift. It could be that they're very depressed or anxious. It could be that they are feeling very uncomfortable with their body changing. But it's kind of nebulous and there's no simple answer. And then when they start to read about gender identity and gender dysphoria, more and more and more, what they describe is the puzzle pieces just start to fit together. And they go, oh, wow, that is me. Mm. And when you think of the, the kinds of descriptions of gender dysphoria that you see floating around online, do you ever feel uncomfortable with your biological sex? Do you ever, you know, wish that you were the other sex? Do you ever feel like you don't fit in with other girls? Do you ever feel awkward in your body? Do you ever feel like something about you is just different? And wow, if you are a teenager in distress and you don't know what to do about it, and then you find that, all of a sudden the suffering starts to become more specific. And then the child becomes preoccupied with this idea that I am actually trans. That is why I'm so distressed. So that is the pathway. And that's how I see this symptom pool, which is a little bit abstract when we think about it, but that's how it plays out in an individual's life. And I, I've seen this happen more and more and more. And of the 1300 that contacted you, are, are, are they mostly ROGD or is there many children or are they adults? Mostly teenage parents of teenagers, parents of kids between the age of, I'd say, 10 and, you know, early 20s. Funny, I run the Gender Dysphoria Support Network. Well, I facilitate at the meetings at them and, you know, parents come and they are really just trying to kind of figure out how they can help their child who has gender dysphoria. And that's that's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can really see the ones who say, like, for example, and it makes you think of the symptom pool and it makes you feel think of exactly what you've just described because they'll come in and they'll say, up until two months ago, this was the most feminine girl you could meet. She was perfectly at one. She was a ballet dancer. She wore dresses. She, she, she reveled in her girlishness. And, you know, she's been bullied recently and now suddenly... Uh, she, she's declared trans identified and the parents are going and she's now negating all of our memories and telling me they're all wrong. They all, they didn't happen. Mm-hmm. She wasn't that girl. Mm-hmm. And the parents are lost because they don't mm-hmm. know how to support this. They genuinely don't know. What, what am I meant to do? Am I meant to kind of get inside my head and rearrange all my memories and bring them back out to what, to a way that would suit my teenager? Or do I, do I say what is my truth and do mm-hmm. I stand by it? And that is the kind of nub of living with 
with with somebody who suddenly declares, and that's why it was well named when Lisa Lippman called it rapid onset. By God, it's rapid. It comes like a bat out of hell into the family, into the person like, and they kind of feel that's what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. I knew there was something what's wrong with me. That's, and I will now, as we said in the first episode, I will now center all of my existence around my gender identity. Everything. I heard the concept of like the trans broken arm, that if you have a broken arm, it's a trans broken arm because (laughs) everything is centered around gender identity. And there's something I'd imagine very liberating and consoling in thinking all my problems are centered on that. And I can just just center it all on that. That's what's wrong with me. And when I get that fixed, I'll be okay. And I... I really, I can really get that. I know, I know that would have been so attractive to me had the symptom pool been there for me. It would have been, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though like I had like a childhood onset, so I'm a different kind of category, but I can so see the concept being very attractive and alluring to a teenager. Yeah. It's very seductive to think that something that seems insurmountable has a very simple solution. And with ROGD, what I see too, and you can tell me if you've experienced this, Stella, I've, I've been sent, you know, sometimes by parents will send me the letters that their children wrote them. Oh yeah. And they're almost verbatim the same letter. So there, it seems to be some sort of a template or script uh, that, that kids are sharing with one another, you know, here's how to explain this to your mom and dad. And so there's a step-by-step process here, isn't there? These, these young teenagers and young adults are offered not only an explanation of why they feel different or what's wrong, but also what to do about it. And so you see very kind of cookie cutter, um, behaviors that are almost identical in terms of coming to parents with some sort of a rebirth statement almost, right? Like you thought you had a daughter, but congratulations, you really have a son. And um, they'll sign it with their new name. They will say, I, I would like to be called he, him, or she, her, depending on the child. And there's a laundry list of requests. Sometimes there's a request for starting puberty blockers or hormones, or at 18, I plan to have this surgery. And there's just a, I can imagine for parents what an absolute blindside this is. Yeah. Not only do you think you know your child, you know they're struggling with something. You see something is going on. But the last thing on your mind, because they've never been non-conforming before, is to, to hear this. And, and what have you noticed with your work with families? How does this impact the family and your experience? I think fam- blindsided is the best word. I think the family don't know what way is up and what way is down because they're kind of told everything you know is wrong. And this is the new reality. And I think the siblings often get very lost in this. And the siblings want to be supportive. 
And uh, they, I think they're the lost, the lost generation here, the siblings are, because I think they're totally left out of the equation. And I can see why. But it's it's a it's a real it's a real issue that I, I I would love to attend to at some stage. I think the parents are shocked, and parents they they don't know how to react. Some react with, "Okay, that's your your, your that's your identity. We'll support you all the way. Let's get you to the proper doctors, and let's get you the support you need." Some react with, "No, that's not it. I think you're lesbian," or "No, that's not it. I think you're distressed." And uh, from there, a huge amount of fights happen. I do see some teenage clients and I think the distress in that teenage client, that teenage client who's writing that letter is often crying, is often in deep distress. And there is nothing more alluring in life. Like, you know, anybody who's taken drugs, like they've just, you know, we hear descriptions of heroin can feel like being wrapped in a duvet and cocaine can feel like you're the most powerful person in the world. And, you know, different drugs give you different things. And this is the first generation that have been offered this concept of take this pill and mm. you be somebody different. Mm-hmm. Take this pill and you cannot be you. You can be somebody who you choose to be. Mm. And you can, you, can, you can choose to how you will look and you will have a new name, a new identity, a new history, a new future new looks, everything of the old you is going to be absolutely deleted. And, you know, we're living in a world where you can delete in a way that we never could before, that you delete your friends, you block and delete and you never have any. And so they've been offered something so alluring that it would make your, as you said earlier in the in the first episode, this is an existential problem. And I think it often is about who am I? And it's developmentally appropriate that that's exactly what they're asking. And then they get this almost, what's the word? This extraordinary voice in the rear. You could be somebody else. Mm. Somebody different. And they think, yes, yes, anybody but me, mm-hmm. anybody but me. And they, they choose and they find a new identity. I hope that's not giving disrespect to the, to the teenagers, but I think it would make any any young person turn their head. So, mm-hmm. alert. and even if there are, because uh, because what you're speaking about, Stella, really resonates for me in the case of, for example, a young person who's very willing to leave themselves behind in pursuit of a new identity. And on the other hand, there are some young people for whom they have been convinced, and, and we need to talk about the way they develop these beliefs as well, but they have become convinced that this is just a slightly better version of themselves, that this is helping them reach their truest yeah, yeah. potential. So even if it's not a person who is trying to throw away their old version of themselves, they really believe this is almost like a, a micro dosing way to become their ultimate version of themselves. And it feels nip and tuck and it feels very much of its generation where you, you, you kind of, what do you do? You put your picture in your Snapchat, you kind of make yourself you, the filters. Filter. Yeah. It feels filtery. Yeah, it's, it's kind of you're changing it slightly, you're changing the lens slightly and you're making yourself that little better. You know, that live in my best life. Yes. And all these phrases, you know, on one level, they feel so positive and on another level, they're kind of insidious because if you always have to live your best life, it, is it given room for, for 
them in the danity of, of life, like, and right. it's, 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 it's feels, it's quite superficial, really. I, I really think that the extraordinary distress of ROGD isn't, isn't examined enough. And even for the kids who are nipping and tucking and just trying to be a little bit more this and a little bit more that, I do feel that they spend many hours agonizing about, am I, am I a gender or am I gender fluid or am I pangender? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they really agonize. And mm-hmm. they spend many, many, many hours ex- ex- examining that. And it can feel very obsessive and compulsive. Yes. yes. And I, I think we often, and you've often said it, I think, is we're missing the main point when we get into that. We're missing, you know, we're, we're kind of, we're attending to A when we should be looking at what's driving A. Mm-hmm. You know? This really feels to me similar to eating disorders. Now, that's not to say that there are no people who actually have a relatively healthy self-concept and struggle with gender dysphoria and can transition and feel relieved and feel okay. I mean, there are certainly cases like that. But when there's this rapid onset gender dysphoria that seems to come out of the blue, um, it, it feels to me very similar to an eating disorder insofar as this is a way to manage distressful experiences by modifying the body. It's an outside in approach. It's a conviction that if only this flesh was slightly more like this, my insides would feel really good. Yeah. And, and that, feels, that feels very, it feels like a shortcut that never gets you to where you want to go. And, you know, I want to just lift up, you know, we're talking about ROGD and some, some people may not know there are, there are data to show the number of young people seeking gender related surgeries has gone up thousands of percents, thousands. And right now, for example, GoFundMe, which of course, this is not the same thing as the data we've collected through clinics and whatnot, but GoFundMe lists 50 or 35,000 781 results for top surgery pages. Those are individuals who are changing gender and are raising money to have mastectomies or breast implants if they're biologically male. And just to be curious, I thought, well, maybe this is really uh, on par with other kinds of, you know, physical surgeries, but nose job only had 3,800 results, whereas top surgery had 35,781 results. Wow. So there's a huge uptick in individuals changing sex compared with other types of plastic surgery that our medical technology offers us today. And when, I don't want to bore people, but the statistics are phenomenally interesting if you give a bit of time like you've just done there. Because when you look at it, up until this generation, there was way more males than there were females who wished to transition. And that was historically consistent and always the situation. And then it suddenly flipped. 
and it's flipped in the last 10 years or so. And uh, you're right about the percentage. I know I'm in Ireland and like something like 2,200% in the last 10 years of children presenting with gender dysphoria. Like if there was a 2,200% uptick in, in the sales of, of chocolate bars, I'd want to know what's going on. <laughs> like, these are phenomenal numbers. You yeah. just don't hear the number 2,200%. You just don't hear it as a number. But of that, it's over 4,000 are girls. So the uptick in girls is much higher. So suddenly it went from something that girls just don't do to suddenly girls do way more than boys. Not only that, is if you look at the numbers of middle-aged people transitioning, it's a massive amount of middle-aged men are transitioning and there's very few middle-aged females transitioning. And you're like, okay, so loads of female teenagers and loads of male middle-aged. What on earth is happening. And you can't look at the stats without going, this is fascinating. And this is so under-researched, it would make your head spin. And so there is so much research out there to kind of be done so that one day in 10 or 15 years, we will know what's happened. How did it happen? Why did it happen? But we don't right now. And right now, there's like you say, there's over 35,000 people looking for uh, GoFundMe for breast construction. What's really, really interesting, I find often with, with clients I work with, is how much is centered on breasts. And then when you look at from page three onwards, how much breasts have been sexualized in the last 40 years or so, and how much breasts have become normalized so that when I went into a shop when I was eight, boobs would be everywhere on page three. It was really, really prominent and it was really, really common. Now, that's not so common now, but Breasts have been sexualized to an extraordinary degree in the last 40 years. You know, back in the day in old films, they talked about a woman's legs and a woman's shape. Now it's just breast, 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 breast. Mm. And it's phenomenal how, how centered the medicalization of trans is on breasts. Boys want the breasts, girls want the binders. Girls want the mastectomies, boys want the breast surgery. And it's very little attention is given to the genitals. That's, that's a by the way. Mm-hmm. It's all about the breasts. And so I'd love, I'd love a lot of, this, uh, of some research to be on breasts. What, what's, what's this all about? And where did it come from? And how much of this is an obsession around breasts? Because so many clients that I've worked with have become obsessed with their breasts. And binding is a huge issue with ROGD. And if you look it up online, the teenagers are, you know, they're, they're obsessed with binding. And they're obsessed with their 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 mastectomy that they will have, that they hope mm-hmm. to have. What are mm. your thoughts on all that? I've ranted, have I? <laughs> no, I, I think you're bringing up so, so many valuable things here. I mean, first of all, I feel like breasts have always been a big deal and we don't, we just don't talk about it. Perhaps because of that same taboo we were describing earlier about teenage bodies and sexuality. But I, I remember being so deeply disturbed by my boobs when I was a teenager. I thought for sure this is not how they're supposed to be shaped. They, I am deformed. There's something deeply wrong with this. I felt very disturbed by receiving certain kinds of attention. I mean, when you are a teenage girl, that is the aspect of your development yeah. that is most visible to others. And when you think of like the, your first bra and things like that, I also remember thinking, and this is probably taboo, but there you go, that like I remember my breasts when they weren't fully formed. 
and they they don't look like breasts that I would see in pictures. They do right. have a different shape. <laughs> and I wonder, do enough teenagers know this? <laughs> that they, they are, not, I'm not saying strange looking, but they said they are unfinished. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it's just occurred to me, that would have really bothered me if yeah. I was growing up today. Because I'd say my, I would, my 13-year-old breasts certainly don't look like the pictures that are being seen all over the place. So therefore, there's something wrong with my breasts. But I just to push back a bit, I've, I've read a lot of books and stuff. And the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, they talked about the woman's legs all mm, the time. Mm-hmm, they, mm-hmm. they didn't talk about breasts. Breasts exploded in the 70s. Yeah. Or Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe exploding. when I do my history, <laughs> exploding breasts. When I do my history of breasts, <laughs> we will find no, I, out. I think you're right. I think you're right. I guess... Um, in terms of what is the wider culture emphasizing about women's bodies, I think you're, you're spot on. I think when it comes to the individual struggle with the development of the body, I still think teenage girls have always had a hard time yeah. with, with their breasts, either, either in a very celebratory way in which a teenager starts, you know, pushing up her boobs and flaunting them everywhere or in a way in which she really tries to hide and I think those are kind of two sides of the same coin that like, I have these things now. What the heck do I do with this? You know, what am I going to do with these things? I'm not used to them. I'm not sure how to handle the type of attention they get me. So I think sometimes teenagers will celebrate that kind of development and some will try to hide it. And it's, it's an awful pain to be in when you're kind of trying to hide your body. You're trying yeah. to hide and everybody can see it because they're front and center and mm-hmm. no other part of your development are just so front and center, right in the middle of, of everything. And so it's, it's a really, I think that the rite of passage for the woman between periods and so many people, I'm interested in what you've got to say about this, but I find so many clients who are distressed with their gender or who have what seems to be a, a kind of very much match the phenomenon of ORGD, have difficult periods, have early puberty, developed early, developed before they were able, um, PCOS, mm. you know, issues around that just seem to come up so often. Are, yeah. you, are you finding that? I, I am. Um, and I, I want to talk a little bit about PCOS because when I first realized there was a link here, I got very interested in it. There's not a ton of research, but there was one 2007 study in Japan of trans men, and it found that 58% of them had PCOS. Oh, my God. Almost 60%. So if we look at the symptoms of what PCOS means, it's polycystic ovarian syndrome, and it has to do with the way the body processes androgen, I believe. And the symptoms are irregular periods, more facial hair, more acne, more body hair, male pattern baldness. So if we just think about it from an experiential perspective, if I was a young woman with PCOS and I was much hairier than my peers, had really bad acne. I had these very irregular, hard to predict periods. 
I can certainly imagine how that might contribute to feeling as though I'm not really the correct kind of woman. I've heard parents say, and I didn't know how to answer, but thought it was an interesting point, something along the lines of, might there be more testosterone in the PCOS woman and might that trigger some sort of trans identification? You know, I I don't know because I'm not... I'm not a doctor. I'm I'm not a biologist. I I'm not sure. But I can't imagine that an excess amount of testosterone in a female person couldn't play some kind of contributing factor to their experience of being a woman. Yeah. I really don't know. Perhaps sometime Stella we should have an endocrinologist on and ask them, pick their brain about all of these medical conditions, because I've also seen families in which the child experienced some kind of really serious early condition, like, um, you know, perhaps a condition that required the child to be hospitalized for a long period of time in their early years, just uh, all these experiences that make me wonder, does this contribute to feeling mismatched in your body? I've also seen, and, um, you know, this is all anecdotal, but that's all we have because right. there are no, there's no big numbers. It's a new phenomenon. So it's all we can work with if we're going to explore this. And I've also seen, uh, as a corollary to what you've just seen, and I have seen what you're talking about, is siblings who've been in and out of hospitals. And they've had very medicalized existence. And it's like the family seeks the medical solution. And there's a pill for every ill. And there's a presumption of the doctors will sort out the problems. Mm-hmm. I know I'm jumping and I'm jumping the kind of conclusions here, but I can. I think we are starting to live in a society where when you feel wrong, you look to the professionals. And I think it's very disempowering. And we, we, we lost our kind of respect for our own kind of solutions, our, our, our internal solutions. Mm-hmm. But I, I suppose when, when we go back to ROGD, there's a massive kind of internet um, connection that I think is very much goes to what you were saying about the symptom pool and very much involved in, as you said as well, cookie cookie cutter letters to parents. And there's one other thing that happens, and I, I think it's very unfortunate, very, very divisive, and I wanted to raise it up, is that a lot of really loving families are being ripped up because the children who, who seek, they seek an answer online. They find an answer in a trans identification and they are warned and heightened that their parents will be transphobic or will mm-hmm. be rejecting. And so they become very combative and they expect negativity from their parents. They expect distress and they, they become, there's a heightened awareness of how the parent mightn't be supporting them in the right way. And I think there's been a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, other illnesses that have hit teenagers like anorexia and the bulimia, self-harm. But this one is particularly distressing for the parents because the parents are viewed as the enemy. And there's a kind of concept of a glitter family. Come to the trans family, which you can find online, because your own family probably won't understand you because you are trans and they aren't. Mm-hmm. That feels very div- divisive. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's important to keep in mind how young people kind of come to these conclusions and how they come to this information. And most of the families I talk to, their child comes out with this identification after spending an extended period of time, really deep, deep, deep into a lot of these online spaces where post after post after post is kind of offering a very simplistic worldview about what could be happening for that young person in addition to preventing the young person from thinking clearly about these issues. So they're kind of funneled in this narrow avenue of thought about what is a correct kind of support from your parents? What is a good or bad thing for a mom or dad to say? What is an acceptable question your parents can ask you? And to really put ourselves in the shoes of these young people, if you have been reading story after story of, for example, trans kids being rejected by their family and becoming homeless, which unfortunately is repeated often, and that's terrible that some young people might find themselves in that position. But more often than not, I think a young person reading stories like that becomes hypersensitive and hypervigilant. And so when you're in that heightened state of fear and you approach your parents, you have a radar for any facial expression, any tone of voice that is anything less than celebratory. And I think kids who have historically very close loving relationships with their parents all of a sudden are completely on guard and their defenses are up. They're afraid of not having the right response from mom and dad. And again, as we talked about earlier, because parents are so blindsided by this announcement, parents will often respond with like a, what are you talking about? Where, where is this coming from? And not in a punitive way, but often there is a genuine shock. Like I'm really confused. And so sometimes this can really set off a, a cascade of serious family challenges. And, and funny enough, on the other side of that, I've also met young people who say, well, my parents have always been so supportive of me. I expected there was no way they would question my gender. That we're so close. My parents have never, you know, we've never fought. Why would they not support that I'm trans? So when parents have very reasonable questions, even, you know, whether the child is anticipating rejection or not, sometimes that just really confuses the relationships in a family. And there's couple of things I want to point out. One is a lot of parents won't have heard of gender identity, so they don't even know that there is a concept out there that you have an identity within you and <laughs> that it's innate and it's fluid and it's, it's unfalsifiable, but it's also unprovable. And so they, they don't know any of that. So they're saying, sorry, what? You're a boy? <laughs> and you've always been very girlish and right. you've always enjoyed being a girl but you've suddenly not and they're not up to date there's a new concept there's new concepts in town (laughs) you don't know about and that concept by the fact that you don't know about the concept makes you transphobic and so they get called transphobic very very easily and very very harshly and that there's also the issue of um 
parents are asked to deny the ch- the child's history and the, deny the reality of how they might know the child. And they're mm. not allowed to raise that up. And so I, 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 I do feel that the parents are blindsided and they don't know how to respond. And that seems very, it seems unfair because wouldn't it be great if these loving parents were given room to kind of give their own view but I suppose if they, if if one person believes in gender identity, the other person doesn't know about gender identity. You're already, you're already in a very difficult position, and it's it's very hard to come out of it. It it causes an awful lot of distress, and it's very hard for anybody to come out of it. It does feel though that um, when I, I go back to it, but the medicalization of it mm. is really intense. Generally, teenagers want to medicalize as fast as possible mm-hmm. their identity. And generally, parents are often saying the child started with being lesbian. Then they said that they were bisexual. And then they said they were trans. And I supported lesbian. I supported bisexual, like you said. And the child thinks, well, of course they're going to support trans. And it jumps because mm-hmm. actually there's a very big difference between sexual orientation and gender identity and we will be exploring that in the in the next episode hopefully Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's really it's really interesting because i often will hear young people you know saying well i'm trying to teach my parents about gender they don't know anything about gender so they will send them you know youtube videos and and resources and it's really if we pulled back i mean you and i of course we live breathe eat sleep we are knee deep in this stuff all the time but if we try to take a little bit of a bird's eye view, it's really incredible to imagine a generation of teenagers who make an announcement that's very, very confusing to parents. And then the teenagers are the ones who are educating the parents about what that means and what's supposed to happen next. And I, I'm aware that, of course, we're, we're talking about ROGD, which is teenagers, but I also know that this is happening with, with younger children as well, where parents uh, take them to a gender clinic and the clinicians are told, okay, well, you got to learn about this, this concept of gender identity and start transitioning your child very, very young. So we'll, we'll definitely have another episode about that. But what do you think of that idea, Stella, that there's this it, it almost feels like a teenage perpetuated concept expanding online. And then the parents have to just get on board. And, and it might be a good time, too, to talk about what happens to families when they take their child to a therapist or to the doctor. But, but let's just start with the idea of this kind of teenage instructions. What do you think? It's, it's really interesting because we've, we've gloried in youth for I think too long now and we've kind of dismissed the wisdom of elders for I think too long now and we've been doing it maybe since James Dean and we have really gloried in the wisdom of the the young person and I think while there is truth and certainly out of the mouth of babes does come some wisdom however I think the elders have a lot to give and I think parents have wisdom and they have knowledge and experience. And we're living in a society which mocks and dismisses people over the age of about 35, 40. So dad dancing and mom jeans and Karens. And mm-hmm. it's, all, it's, it's, it's very derogatory. And it's come to a stage where now 
teenagers have have been pumped up with the idea that they probably know more than their parents and they don't they don't they might know some jargon but they don't Oof. know more than their parents there's a second point to this that i think we need to raise before we go on to the other there's so much to this subject and we won't <laughs> give any more treatments but very often these children i've noticed i'd be interested in whether you might have as well they're often very compliant good Ooh. they're quiet they're agreeable they're non-assertive and they fall in they are obedient and then when it comes to gender they find their voice and they learn a bit of assertion and it's the first time that they become powerful and i've i've often worked with assertiveness with 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 teenagers and when they first become powerful they can be a bit clunky and a bit clumsy and a bit over, I'll, I'll never forget when I was actually studying <laughs> to become a, a counsellor, and uh, the uh, we had a Christmas dinner, and all the all the different kind of classes were meeting for the Christmas dinner, and one one group were the self assertion. I shouldn't laugh, but it is kind of funny. They were the self assertion classes, and they sent back the Christmas dinner. <laughs> This is a true story. <laughs> because I don't know. I, I, I asked, they decided it wasn't appropriate. So one table sent back the Christmas dinner of the Christmas uh, uh, event. And I asked, who, who are they? And they were the assertiveness guy. <laughs> it always stuck in my mind that when you first start to be assertive, having had many years crushing your feelings and pushing your thoughts down, you come out like all over the place. And um, I often feel these kids are coming out all over the place because they've never been assertive before. And I find working with teenagers who might have ROGD or who certainly are kind of identifying with many of those traits, they, if you work on their assertion and their strength and their powerful voice, it can be quite helpful that there's many ways to be assertive and it's not just by throwing jargon at you from the from the computer. But what, where I completely lost my thread. What, <laughs> so Whereas well, there a second point we were going to talk about or do you want to talk about the agreeable? Well, nature? let's let's just spend a minute there since we're here. I think that is spot on. I just as a kind of disclaimer, I've worked with a few kids who don't seem to have that problem. But I do see this as being the most common kind of presenting problem in this population. And I often will explore with clients, what is it about this new persona that feels different? You know, we, we will often talk about that. And I, I find that more often than not, this new character that the child is curating is somebody who feels confident and it's very tempting and, and tricky as a therapist not to take all of this so literally in that, oh, well, if you're feeling more confident in this presentation, then the presentation is the solution. What we need to keep in mind is that there is a need here that's being met. And what we want to do is help nurture this new way of being in all presentations. And I think you're right. I think kids who are experimenting with this identity, parents will always tell me, 
we've literally never had to say no to her before or to him before. He's such a good kid. Teachers love him. He's so well behaved. And I've never had to, you know, set a boundary or punish or a discipline. So this is a new territory for a lot of these families that there's now this tension between something the child is asserting and is demanding and what the parents are wanting to do. Now, I'm sure there are other configurations of this that maybe just don't make their way onto my caseload or into my practice. But I think young people are really looking for a way to stand tall. And, you know, there's something about teenagehood, too. Kids become very self-conscious at this age. And they have a very hard time being true to their authentic self. I mean, even though that's a lot of jargon, there's something very valuable there. We all want to be authentic. And teenage years are a time when we do a lot of pretending to fit in. And we're willing to, you know, take on various personas in order to fit in with a certain crowd or to be part of a certain cool group. And so this is very developmentally normal. But I do think as clinicians, it's valuable for us to kind of ask, well, what is what is the child really trying to accomplish here? What do they want and what are they trying to get away from? Yeah, I I like to bring and you like to bring a depth perspective. And also, I think we have to give respect to, I suppose, the the learning that who we're standing on psychologically when 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 we come as therapists to to the clinic. And when you look at like the work of Eric Erickson and you talk about psychosocial development, you'd say it's it's absolutely natural and appropriate for the 12 to, you know, in and around early 20s person to kind of explore their identity mm-hmm. and to ask, who am I? And to try on different hats and say, maybe I'm one of this type of person. And when they try that on, they have to try it on with extreme authenticity. They can't kind of pretend to be that person. They have to be that person. Mm -hmm. So they're trying it on. And then Mm -hmm. they have to be another person. And all of us will have gone through that in our teenage years. And it it is real. I wouldn't even say it feels real. It is real. Mm -hmm. At that that time, you're trying to be maybe the the sports kid or you're trying to be the popular kid or you're trying to Mm -hmm. be the outrageous kid or the you're trying on different hats and so you should be. That's exactly what you should be doing between those ages. And it's like there's extraordinary collective amnesia that seems to be happening, that this, there's a new kid in town, there's a new theory. It's maybe 10, 15 years old as in so far as in, in the context of gender. It's a very new theory. Very new concepts are happening here. And the idea is you run with it, you run with it fast and you medicalize it. And it's like, well, hang on, because if you look at Freud and Jung, if you look at, you know, William Glasser, if you look at Carl Rogers, if you look at all, maybe listeners don't know who I'm talking about, but I'm talking about <laughs> greats in psychology, like mm-hmm. Aaron Beck and Eric Erickson, they would say, whoa, 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 let's bring some depth into this child's existence. Let's let's look deeper mm-hmm. and let's make sure that we're we're exploring all the different facets of this individual. Mm-hmm. So it, we, we, we're coming up towards the end and there, we could talk for another 24 hours quite <laughs> easily on this. But uh, I, I think there's a lot more to say. Do you? Oh, I do. I do. I think to, to kind of round out, you lifted up some of these 
I guess the 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 foundational theorists of psychology. I think what I find valuable about that perspective is that it causes us to be a little bit cautious and perhaps even a little bit skeptical of something that's overly novel. Something that comes into the culture that has a very kind of uh, exotic, you know, sexy, kind of uh, transfixing way of, of capturing everyone's attention and offering these brand new worldviews about what is human being, what is what is teenager. And it, the depth psychology really, for me, is very grounding because it, it makes me say, you know, perhaps there's nothing new under the sun. Perhaps we need to slow down and take this uh, in, into perspective about what we know about all of teenagehood and all of, you know, human psychology. So I think you're right. I think eventually we're going to have to stop saying we could talk about this forever because <laughs> we'll have many, many more episodes where we continue to talk. And one thing I think in the next episode we're going to discuss, it's something that comes up so often, which is, well, what is the difference? Are they just the same? Is being gay and being trans, is mm -hmm. it the same? Well, what's the difference? And I think there's a, a huge conflation has happened here with gender identity and sexual orientation. And I'm very, I'm very much looking forward to saying, yeah, actually two very different concepts, never have been the same, never will be the same. And it, we really need for the, the public to be aware of this. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just misinformation to think that they're the same thing. Yeah, I think you're right. This is, it's so easy for us to just lump things into categories. Sometimes our minds do that for simplicity and, you know, uh, the sake of trying to categorize a lot of information, but there are big, big differences. And we'll cover that in as much depth as we can in the next episode. Great stuff. Looking forward to it. All right, Stella, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.